of chapter 3. And uh, with three more chapters, if you do the math in your head, then you will uh, correctly conclude uh, that there are plans for 12 more sermons. And so here we are at the midpoint of the letter, and we find ourselves in a perfect place for a doxology. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the word doxology, it literally means the study of glory. So you're more familiar with words probably like theology and uh, theos, that's the Greek word for God, and so that's the study of God. Or biology, bios is uh, the Greek word for life, and so that's the study of life. Well, doxa, that means glory, the Greek word for glory. And so literally, doxology is the study of glory, but it's, it's become uh, a term used to describe a short hymn of praise um, where people give glory to God. As I've, I've pointed out um, before in this series, it just takes a, a really quick read through Ephesians to notice that there's a natural structure to this letter. The first three chapters are more theological, they're more doctrinal. The second three chapters are, are more ethical and more practical. In other words, in the first half of the letter, Paul focuses on what he thinks the church should believe. That's what he focuses the first half of the letter. The second half of the letter, Paul focuses on how he thinks the church should behave. And that order makes sense because we believe, what we believe um, about the church should determine how we behave as the church. You follow me? So that's, it's really important. The order is very important because what we believe, if we read and understand chapters 1 through 3 as what we believe the church should be, then that's going to determine then the second half of the letter, how we think the church should behave. And so with that simple structure in mind, this doxology is not only a fitting conclusion to this prayer that we looked at last week in verses 14 through 19 of chapter 3, but it's also a very fitting conclusion to the entire first three chapters of the letter. It brings the first half of the letter to a proper close. Because the gospel truths that Paul has shared with us up to this point are truly breathtaking. The gospel truths that Paul has shared with us over these first three chapters bring us to this place of praise. There's nothing else we can do but praise God for who he is. I want to give a summary of these first three chapters. Some of this will uh, bring these last 12 sermons kind of back to your memory as I share this summary of the first three chapters. A Christian, some of what we've learned, a Christian is one who lives in Christ, We live in Lexington, 
But more importantly, we live in Christ. That's where our identity is found. That locale should determine how we behave and live in this locale. And in Christ, we've been given every spiritual blessing. Well, I don't know what your life looks like in Lexington, but here's what I know about our life that we have in Christ. We've been given every spiritual blessing, Paul tells us. And as, we've, as we read and learn about what these spiritual blessings are, we learn that this, they form this incalculable kind of wealth. It's the kind of blessings that you can't put a price tag on. You can't put a number on it. There's not a dollar figure that could buy it. It includes things like we're adopted in Christ. We're redeemed in Christ. We're unified in Christ. In Christ, we're not just recipients of the gospel, but we are participants together with Christ in the gospel. And that changes everything. The gospel that includes the incarnation, in the crucifixion, in the resurrection, in the ascension, in the exaltation. We're not only just recipients of this gospel, but we are participants of this gospel together with Christ. And because of this, we no longer live from our old condition in sin where we were corpse and controlled and children of wrath. But now we live from our new position, seated in the heavenlies in Christ. And we have such a full salvation in Christ. And we're part of the masterpiece of God's new creation called the Church, which is you together with me in Christ. And this new entity called the church is made possible only through the power of God's powerful power. It's only through this power where God destroys old hostility between us, where God creates new humanity, and God reconciles through humility. And God does this because the mystery of Christ is that God brings all things in heaven and on earth together in Christ. The mystery of Christ is that God brings all things in heaven and on earth together in Christ. And this mystery is to become the ministry of the church. Our witness is to be our witness, not just to the world, but to the heavens. And this unity that we create in Christ displays for the heavens a people who are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Can I get an amen? 
Because Paul wants to hear an amen at the end of chapter 3. If you notice in your text, he concludes with amen. Actually, um, several of you have come up to me during this series and have told me you wanted to shout out an amen a couple of different times, but you just, for whatever reason, we could name them, but we won't this morning. For whatever reason, you just didn't feel comfortable doing it. So now, Paul gives you an opportunity to say amen. So I know we've read this already three times beautifully, but I want to read it another way. I want to read this doxology. I'm going to read verses 20 and 21, and then you are going to respond with amen. Okay? Here we go. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, According to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. 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 Scholars believe that Paul is asking his listeners here, can I get an amen? As this letter was being read, the reader of the letter would have paused after the doxology, and the listeners would have shouted, amen. So it's a responsive amen. And there's so much to respond to. There's so much to affirm. There's so much to say, may it be so in our midst. Let's just spend a moment um, looking at this doxology in verses 20 and 21 specifically. these, These are great words. These are words that you've probably sung. These are words you've read over and over again. These are words you've heard prayed. You know, there are other doxologies in the Bible, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. However, I I think this is most likely the most well-known of the doxologies, and there's really just one point that I want to make this morning as we think about this doxology. You know, it it would be right for us to direct all of our praise and all of the glory to God for what he has done for us in the past, right? That would be That would be a good thing to do, and we could surely do that. We could spend this day, we could spend tomorrow, we could spend the rest of eternity praising and glorifying God for all that he has already done for us in the past. But that's not what Paul does here. In Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Instead, Paul directs all of our praise and all of the glory to God, not for what he's done for us in the past, but for what he is able to do within us in the present. Verse 
John Stott was a theologian, pastor, writer. In his commentary on Ephesians, he takes this first half of um, verse 20, and he breaks it down into seven stages. Uh, And each one builds on the last to emphasize the potential, to kind of get us focused on exactly what Paul's saying here, to emphasize the potential of what God is able to do in us today. And so I want to kind of walk through these stages to emphasize this for us this morning. Stage one, look at your Bibles, have them open there. Stage one, God is able to do. That's the first stage. God's not dead. He's not asleep. He didn't get this ball rolling and now he's on vacation. He's not uninterested. He's not aloof. He is able to do now, today, in the present. That's stage one. Stage two, God is able to do what we ask. God hears our prayers. God is attentive to us. Jesus tells us that the heavenly Father knows the number of hairs on our heads. He knows when the sparrow falls from the tree. He's attentive. Stage three, God is able to do what we imagine. He knows our thoughts. He knows what we're trying to say even when we can't say it. He knows what we're trying to ask even when we don't know how to ask it. Stage four, God is able to do all we ask or imagine. Now, in the Greek, I like to always point this out. All means everything. Everything. All. We ask. Or imagine, nothing is impossible with our God. Stage five, God is able to do more than all we ask or imagine. See, our God is able to do beyond our prayers, beyond our thoughts, beyond our imagination. Stage six, God is able to do much more than all we ask or imagine. Oh, he's able to do much more. Stage seven, God is able to do so much more than all we ask or imagine. He is able to do way more than anything that we could even possibly come up in our wildest dreams. The NIV 84 translates it immeasurably more. The Christian Standard Bible translates it above and beyond. The English Standard Version translates it far more abundantly. The New Living Translation translates it infinitely more. The American Standard Version translates it, exceeding abundantly above. 
It takes three stages to explain it and so many different words to translate it, but it's just one word in the Greek. The word that Paul uses here is a word that scholars believe he made up. He coined it. As far as we know, Paul's the only one to have ever used this word. It's not found in any other literature. And perhaps it's best translated by Buzz Lightyear as to infinity and beyond. You see, it's the highest form of comparison imaginable. Paul speaks here in super, super superlatives because his God is one who literally is vastly more than much more. Paul is able to say that he's the most least deserving. Remember back in chapter 3? At the beginning there, Paul says he's the most least deserving of all the saints. And Paul's able to say that he's the most least deserving of all the saints because he believes in a God who is able to do vastly more than much more within him. I hope, I hope you get Paul's point. I hope you hear the words of this doxology. I hope you hear his praise. There are no limits to what God can do inside of you. There are no limits to what God can do inside of you. You need to get up in the morning and push repeat on that and let it play over and over and over again in your heart. And that's not just power of positive thinking. That's the power of the gospel. There are no limits to the kind of change and to the kind of transformation that God is able to do in your inner beings. There are no boundaries to the kind of healing in the kind of restoration that God is able to do in our hearts. Look, Paul's heart for the church in this prayer, we looked at it last week, is for the church to become a people who are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, right? That's how that beautiful prayer ended. That's his heart for the church. We're, we're, we're led into his prayer journal, and we, we know what he kneels before God. That's, that's his vision. That's his deep heart for the church, is that we be a people who are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Well, not only is God able to do that in us, God's able to do more than that in us. And not only is God able to do more than that in us, God's able to do much more than that in us. And not only is God able to do much more than that in us, God's able to do vastly more than much more than that in us. He is able to do exceeding abundantly more. Do you believe that? Amen. In verse 21, Paul concludes the doxology 
by giving glory to God. And how could he not? You know, the best definition of glory I have seen is simply stated as all that makes someone great. That's somebody's glory. All that makes that person great. So then the glory of God is all that makes God great. And listen to what Paul says in this verse. He says, all the things that make God great, all of the qualities, all of the characteristics, all of the traits that make God great can be most clearly seen throughout all generations and forever and ever in these two ways, in the church and in Christ Jesus. Now, I agree with Paul that the glory of God is most clearly seen in Christ Jesus. But in the church? Really? David proclaimed in Psalm 19 that the heavens... Declare the glory of God. To whom? To us. The heavens declare the glory of God to earth. That's what, that's what David wrote in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God to us. Paul proclaims in the doxology that the church in Christ Jesus Declare the glory of God to the heavens. God has chosen to declare his glory in the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, and in his masterpiece, the church. And he is able to do exceeding abundantly more than all we ask or imagine according to his power at work within us. Let's pray together. Father, unbelievable. We give you praise. We give you glory. The truths of the gospel. We never want to take this for granted. If, 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 if we hear the truths of this gospel that are presented by Paul in Ephesians 1 through 3, and it doesn't lead us to praise, then we didn't hear them correctly. You are able to do this.
And so we ask that you will come into our inner beings, into our hearts, that you will pour out afresh upon our church so that glory will be shown to the heavens. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand together and give our praise and our glory to God.